Hi everyone and welcome to episode 35 of the FFS show, a podcast by the ferret about misinformation and fact checking. This week I'm all on my own, unfortunately. Uh, Sam has uh, ridden off into the distance, so I come to you bereft and without a co-host partner. But fear not, this podcast will be back in the coming weeks with a variety of new co-hosts. Some people you might recognise from earlier episodes will be joining me to dissect some claims and to do some great misinformation-related interviews with some great guests we've got lined up. And talking of great guests, this week we have the second half of the interview me and Sam did a few weeks back with Eve Livingston. Now, if you weren't listening last week, Eve is a freelance journalist who does some work for The Ferret and has written a brilliant book about unions called Make Bosses Pay. Yeah, if you missed the first half of this chat, I strongly urge you to go back and check it out. In this part of the chat, we talked about the perceptions of unions in the 21st century and whether the increase in precarious work and non-traditional forms of work has reduced or affected the influence of unions and how some modern companies manage to frame what would have been considered to be negative things about work culture into positives. It's a really great chat with Eve, and I'll be back on the other side to give you some essential information. So let's get into it. Do you think that, to an extent, unions uh, in the UK sort of lost a PR battle in like the like the 70s and 80s? And you hear, you, you hear quite often uh, people saying things like, okay, I obviously don't like Thatcher, but she had to break the power of the unions or she had, you know, these are things the unions were holding the country to ransom and stuff like that. Do you think that is like a pervasive view that has kind of took, taken hold since then? Yes, I, I think I do. I think I do agree with that. I also always think of the kind of, you know, the 70s and 80s, the sort of minor strike um, time as having this very... Um, odd position in people's memories where at once it's sort of glorified Mm. and romanticized I think as being this even by people who aren't you know kind of staunch trade unionists as being this quite powerful moving moment you know there's often kind of footage of that um used in like documentaries and things that people find very sort of moving and powerful as an example of ordinary people's strength um you know to come together and try to change things but at the same time I think you're right that it has kind of created this particular image that's still pervasive um both in terms of as you're saying this sort of idea that unions are kind of sort of sinister I think there's this sense that unions are sort of sinister and they're not acting in the interest of ordinary people they're kind of acting in the interest of a small group of people who um are you know in that image sort of white shouty old men um and that is also a kind Mm. of pervasive image that I think still exists today which um can be quite harmful for unions kind of image more widely and and reputation I think um so yeah I think unions are still suffering with the, the sort of hangover of that both in a PR sense and in a very real um, sort of policy sense because of all the the moves that have come after that to sort of make sure that we can never see that sort of display of collective strength again um so yeah certainly it has a, a long-lasting legacy i think in terms of the the kind of things that make uh, that again are getting in the way of kind of union membership or or a positive kind of view of unions do you think there's something about the increase in kind of casual work precarious work gig economy kind of thing that can lead people to being less aware on what they should join or how they should join or what the benefits are like is is that getting in the way and and how are unions combating that 
I think it's a real challenge for unions because they just weren't set up. The kind of big traditional unions just weren't set up for that form of work. So, you know, they were established for um, essentially men going to do manual labor. um, And that's that's still the model that they run on is the model that they were established, um, you know, in the shape that they were built in um, all those years ago. And so um, precarious work and the, the type of work that people do in call centres and for, you know, takeaway platforms, um, mm. kind of courier drivers, that type of work is just really difficult. I think it's a conundrum for the union movement, um, mm. not least because those workers are so kind of atomised from both from right. each other and from the, yeah. their bosses. They don't often have a named boss that they see. They, they just have an app or, you know, they don't even have a kind of headquarters building. They just go out right. in the morning and start their day and they don't bump into each other or they don't see each other unless they right. happen to bump into each other just on shift. So that's really difficult for, for unions to organise that workforce. But we have seen kind of newer grassroots unions emerge to try and solve exactly that problem. So mm-hmm. unions like the Independent Workers of Great Britain and United Voices of the World that are relatively new have only kind of existed within the last decade or so. Um, they they emerged because um, it was so difficult for the traditional unions to organise precarious workers. And it, they kind of felt that they needed a whole new approach and a whole new union. And actually... Now, I think some of the most kind of inspiring, exciting, innovative trade unionism is coming from those um, workforces. So kind of Uber drivers and Deliveroo drivers and those kinds of um, workforces are doing some really exciting work around um, trying to change the status of precarious work and get kind of worker status for those people. Um, So I think they're doing a great job, but certainly, you know, there are whole swathes still of people in precarious work that just haven't ever kind of been in touch with the union at all. So there's still a big challenge there. It happens a lot in like modern sort of tech brands as well, this sort of um, setting up what you might have considered to be a negative as a positive. So instead of it being precarious work, it's like it's flexible. Um, And in in regard with regard to sort of things like collective uh, solidarity and then collective bargaining, there's, you know, like uh, Ubers and uh, delivery drivers and uh, all the sort of various like delivery, uh, food delivery, they're all getting rated against each other and they're all mm. basically competing for jobs. And they're all they're all kind of the way that they're set up and that they're framed is as like almost like as independent contractors who are just out there on their own. And this is the job that they're doing. Does that, so that, does that not have an impact on then getting people together to try and bargain collectively for things? Yeah, I think that's a huge issue. I think uh, particularly the kind of prevalence now of zero hours contracts, which is exactly as Mm. you describe, you're in competition with everyone around you for shifts and, you know, um, kind of overtime and and that sort of thing. Um, And I suppose it's similar to the the kind of problem we described with precarious workers, where the incentives to act collectively are kind of much lower than they probably previously were for the sort of manual laborers that unions were set up for. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it requires unions to to tell a different story, to try and be having a different conversation that's um, that kind of recognizes that, recognizes that you're in this really kind of competitive dog eat dog situation. but that if you act collectively, you can sort of raise the floor for for everyone. Um, so I think there's a role for for unions in sort of um, political education that's not just about saying to people, um, we can help you get a better, fairer wage or we can help you mm. work shorter hours. But it's actually about making that case about how kind of acting collectively is the only way to change things more broadly um, in your workplace and also in society at large. Um, and I think unions haven't kind of in recent years been great at that because they've been kind of self protectionist because of the the sort of 
all these powers acting against them they've had to just do their best to survive in that climate so quite often they've just kind of worked to service um existing members rather than trying to tell this wider story and sort of act as a sort of political educator um Mm. but i think that's probably one of the ways that they can be most effective in those competitive precarious kind of zero hours contracts type of workplaces and so i'd like to see them doing more of that going forward yeah now some of some of the chatter that we've seen over the last few months around unions is that um the um they're often seen or, or framed as being too willing to strike or too or willing to strike too quickly um and, and kind of following a thing of like causing more disruption than actually trying to find a solution to to any given thing um how how do you respond to that so i think the, the first thing to point out um and actually we kind of touched on it earlier is that it's really difficult for unions to strike it's not an easy kind of flippant right. thing that they can mm. do um, you know, under all this kind of anti-union legislation, they have to they have to ballot their members, and they have to get a huge amount of support from their members to be able to go on strike. And then yeah. they have to give you know a lot of notice to the employers that they're going to do that. So there's plenty of time for employers to come to the table and kind of work to call off a strike by making a, a better offer. So yeah, so the first thing to say is that that they don't take that decision easily or lightly. Um, in fact, it's impossible for them to do so because it's such an undertaking for them to go on strike. Um, the second thing is that, and, and this I guess comes under misinformation. I think a lot of people still don't understand that workers who go on strike aren't being paid. You know, they're right. out on a picket line, um, mm. refusing to work. They're not being paid for the days they're doing that. And these are people who are striking over paying conditions, so they're not very well paid to begin with. So they're taking a huge sacrifice. Um, to to do that, to kind of display that strength and to try and call for something different. And they do it as a last resort, you know, they do it because nothing else has worked. And yes, it's the bit that the public see because it's on the news, this, these picket lines and the strikes and things. It's not reported when there's kind of behind the scenes negotiations before it gets to strike stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no one's, no one's standing outside a negotiation room at um, kind of RMT or, um, right. you know, the, the railway lines kind of headquarters reporting on what's happening inside the room so nobody sees that bit so maybe it looks to people like it's kind of come out of nowhere but it's certainly you know always a a last resort for for workers um and and it's just one of many tactics and it depends I think on your union you know and the the kind of climate that you're working in um as to whether striking is the best tactic at any given moment um because it's not always going to be the best thing that's available to you there might be other things that you can do first or that you can do instead um but you know i think that we have to trust individual kind of unions and their memberships to know what's best at any given moment um and so you know I, i'll always support workers that want to go out on strike because i believe that they understand better than anyone the, the situation right. they're in and, and what they can do to to try and solve it Thanks to Eve for her insightful contributions there. And uh, thanks again to Sam for all his help uh, on the podcast over the last new year, I think. And now he's gone, it's over to me to do the important stuff. Uh, so remember, you can email us at factcheck at scott if you've got any queries or anything you'd like us to look at. You can uh, suggest a fact check at checkmyfact.paperform.co. And if you like our podcast and any of the other work we've been doing, please consider subscribing to The Ferret. It's just £5 a month. You can go to theferret.scot forward slash subscribe and sign up there. That's all we've got time for this week. I will be back, not alone, in a couple of weeks with a brand new podcast co-host. 
I'll see you then.